Welcome to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is brought to you by Babbel.com. Babbel, the language for life. We have a fantastic interview and subject today with our guest, author Scott Shea, whom I will introduce in just a moment. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 723rd episode when I spoke with psychologist Dr. Jennifer Goodman about her new book, Beyond Happiness, The Six Secrets of Lifetime Satisfaction. Two weeks ago, I spoke with editor-in-chief at Prevention Magazine, Sarah Smith. Prevention Magazine has been a leading provider of trustworthy health information, empowering readers, especially those in our Not Old Better Show audience, with practical strategies to improve their physical, mental, and emotional well-being for 70 years. Excellent subjects for our Not Old Better Show audience. If you miss those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out, along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. You can Google Not Old Better and get everything you need to know about us. For our Not Old Better Show audience on radio and podcast, we know that there are only a few songs that have captured the contradictions and ambiguities and imagination of the 1960s as memorably as California Dreamin', the iconic folk music single that catapulted the mamas and the papas into rock and roll history. In the book, All the Leaves Are Brown, our guest today, author Scott Shea, will tell us about John Phillips, Deddy Doherty, Michelle Phillips, and Mama Cass Elliott, and how they became standard bearers for California counterculture, following their transformation from folk music wannabes to rock sensations, and chronicling the tumultuous events that followed their unexpected success. Scott Shea gives us today a definitive account of the Mamas and the Papas' short time together, from their hit-making approach with legendary producer Lou Adler, to John Phillips's unique songwriting to tours and friendships with other musicians riding the folk rock wave and how the song California Dreamin' becomes a reality. The winter months of 1963 were bitterly cold in New York, and with the last week of January and the first half of February being particularly frigid, Michelle, who had grown up in Mexico and Los Angeles, was unprepared for this kind of weather and reminisced about the warm temperatures back home. John empathized. One freezing February night, after being up for a couple of days, addled on speed, he sat in their cold living room, the heater on the fritz, working on a new song. The somber melody was not unlike numbers previously played by the journeyman, but it was the words inspired by personal events that made it different and new. All the leaves are brown and the sky is gray. I've been for a walk on a winter's day. I'd be safe and warm if I was in L.A., California dreaming on such a winter's day. The lyrics recounted the stroll through Greenwich Village that he and Michelle had taken that afternoon. The first snowfall of the season had blanketed New York. Michelle had not seen snow since her childhood, and she liked the romantic notion of strolling about town through it with her husband. The only problem was that she didn't know how to dress for a New York winter. She threw on an overcoat and a tank top, jeans and sneakers. Walking through Washington Square Park, the reality of the Northeast February set in, and she and John reminisced about California sunshine. The scene ran through John's memory after Michelle went to bed. As the night progressed and the temperature dropped to two below zero, he knew he was on to something special. 
Since first being to drawn to, since first being drawn to poetry at Linton Hall, he had written many songs, but this was something altogether different. None of his songs had sounded as fluid and as natural as this. John didn't want to lose this one. He went into a dark he went into the dark bedroom where Michelle was asleep. Help me write this, he whispered. I want to sleep tomorrow, she replied groggily. No, now, he insisted. Michelle could tell he was high on Benny's and took the path of least resistance. John assured her, you'll thank me for this someday. She climbed out of bed and made her way to the living room, still half asleep. She grabbed the notepad and wrote down the words that John sang them to her. They immediately conjured up memories of their walk together. She thought of a detail John had left out. To get out of the cold, they had gone inside St. Patrick's Old Cathedral on Moss Street, the venerable seat of the Archdiocese of New York from 1815 to 1879. The Romanesque church had served as, re- as refuge from the cold, a place they could warm up without being pressured to buy something. Although irreligious, Michelle had a soft spot for Catholic churches stemming from her childhood in Mexico. She admired the architecture and artwork. The flowers and the smell of the incense brought back memories of Saturday night sleepovers at the homes of school friends, which almost always included mass the following morning. John had the opposite reaction. Churches made him uneasy, mostly because of the trauma he endured at Linton Hall. After only a few minutes, he retreated outside while Michelle meditated and warmed up inside a little longer. Back in their apartment, Michelle proposed these lyrics. I stopped into a church I saw along the way. I got down on my knees and I pretend to pray. John wasn't enamored, but accepted them as a placeholder to be, written, to be rewritten later. Michelle, on a roll, came up with the next line. You know, the preacher loves the cold. He knows I'm going to stay, which rhymed with John's refrain, California dreaming on such a winter's day. Happy with the results, John stowed the song away in his notepad of potentials. He debuted it a few nights later at a party at Judy Collins' apartment to a small audience of fellow musicians. It went over well but didn't leave anybody breathless. The folk song arrangement was a far cry from the clarion call it would eventually become with the Mamas and the Papas. Still, California Dreamin' was unlike anything John Phillips had written before. He thought he might take it uptown and pitch it to the music publishers of the Brill Building. Maybe somebody would want to record it. And that, of course, is our guest today, Scott Shea, reading from his new book, All the Leaves Are Brown. You will love this story, this interview, and the music. So please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast author, Scott Shea. Scott Shea, welcome to the program. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to talk to you. Uh, Congratulations on this wonderful book, All the Leaves Are Brown. The research is amazing. Bibliography is impressive. The index, all of this stuff is so great. What, What was it that led you to just dive into this specific group, this era that my audience is just going to know so well. And and what was it about the story that just drove you to tell it? Well, you know, um, I love reading. I'm an avid reader. And uh, I had just finished up some, I, yeah, I'd written about, written and produced about five documentaries for the Catholic Channel on Sirius XM. They're audio documentaries. Mm-hmm. And um, was looking to get into writing a book. I wanted to, to write something. And um, music was my favorite subject, um, especially, you know, vintage music, 50s, 60s, 70s. And um, I had written, uh, I had read, um, you know, I've read a lot of books on the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, read, read some on Bob Dylan, and had just finished up reading a great book by Peter Ames Carlin uh, on the life of Paul Simon called Homeward Bound. And 
I was like, you know, I think I could, I think I could write a book. I mean, it's not that much different from, you know, writing a, a documentary or so I thought. And, um, you know, I, when I did the documentaries, I enjoyed the research and the, the interviewing aspect. And, uh, you know, after I had finished that book, I was like, you know, I like to read about the mamas and the papas or John <laughs> Phillips or one, one of the others. Yeah. And uh, went, went to go find a book. And because yeah, I was like, you know, it's like folk rock. I was in the, yeah. going through a folk rock idiom and uh, couldn't find anything uh, that was written in the 21st century. You know, <laughs> so I was like, uh, bang, there it is. Boom. I got my subject. Uh, so, you know, I started looking into it, picked up a few books. You know, they had some books published in the 80s and in the uh, right around 2000. Um, there was a couple uh, like there was a, an oral history and uh, a short biography um, and read those. I read John and Michelle. They both put out competing uh, autobiographies in 1986. Uh, you know, a lot of time had passed since then. I felt, this, well, you know, the story could probably use a little refreshing, a little updating. And, uh, and I went in uh, went right into it, dove right in and Got you know did the research. Uh, got some interviews with people that they knew and had played with, and just started the book. Kind of started writing itself, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, congratulations, Scott Shea. I you know I loved it. Yeah, absolutely. I know my audience is just going to love this again. We're with Scott Shea, his the author of the new book, All the Leaves Are Brown: How the Mamas and the Papas Came Together and Broke Apart. Yeah, hard to almost believe that the story wasn't told before this i mean maybe maybe start at the start where does the name come from the mamas and the papas uh they you know they had um signed to dunhill records uh john and michelle and denny and cass and they didn't have a name you know they they had been so busy rehearsing and trying to get auditions and stuff they didn't they didn't come up with a name i think they had a couple of names they kicked around. I know one was called the Magic Circle or something like that, and that didn't that you know, didn't really stick. Um, so they were watching uh, a TV a news program. Uh, the name escapes me at the moment. It's in my book, though. It's funny. Um, uh, and it was um, they were interviewing the the host was interviewing Sonny Barger, yeah. who was the co-founder of the Hell's Angels. You know, and uh, the 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 uh, the host was rather antagonistic and uh, talking about their the women in their biker group and how they treat them. And he said, "Those are our mamas, man." You know, he's like, you know, and and uh, and Cass was watching it, and she's like, "That's it, we'll be the mamas," and you know, and and John's like, "Yeah, we could be the the papas and the mamas," and and she's like, she, and, you know, Cass is like, "No, you jerk," you know, <laughs> mamas comes. Comes before Papa's every time, so uh, everybody was just like, "Yeah, that's it! Boom, we found it!" And it was definitely better than Magic Circle. I think. Uh, yeah. I don't know if we'd be yeah. talking about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks to Sonny Barger there for. <laughs> yeah, know, thank you, Sonny. Yeah, jumping in and helping out with the name. Yeah, right. the, the the name is classic. the The sound, the harmony, is just such a. You know, it just harkens to that time period in my mind. I, I love this music, and who doesn't love the mamas and the papas? But what what do you think that that really did set them apart in this this time, this kind of this time period? That music scene, you know, that influenced them. Certainly, many many paths cross in this book. One of which was Lou Adler, and he contributed so much. But what was it that really brought this all together? Uh, definitely the harmony, you know, um, it was, 
you, you know, there was a lot of harm, uh, harm, harmonious groups, I guess you could say back then. I mean, you had the Beach Boys um, and the Four Seasons and, uh, you know, the, you know, the Beatles harmonized and so did the Birds. But this was two men and two women. Um, and you didn't really have that. You had Peter, Paul and Mary, uh, but this was folk rock and Peter, Paul and Mary didn't really go into folk rock. And, um, and, and couple that with John, uh, you know, John Phillips's talent, his ability to arrange, to write a really great song, uh, to come up with really, um, you know, very different, uh, trendy sounding arrangements that were kind of like, in line with what Brian Wilson was doing with the Beach Boys. And then you have Cass Elliot, you know, um, just that voice, that booming, soaring, lilting voice that just, you know, rises above everybody. And just, it's, it's, it's almost like David Crosby. You know, when you listen to Crosby, Stills and Nash, you can really hear David Crosby in those harmonies. It's just, it's unmistakable. And it's the same with Cass. You know, and, you know, those two were actually very good friends because I think they really I think that was one thing they had in common, just that distinctive, powerful voice that listed everybody. You know, I used to go to um, uh, this monastery years ago um, when I was right out of college and I would at night I would go. They would you know just go there to, just to pray and stuff. And uh, that I and I lived didn't live too far from it. And they would do Compline. It's the it was the song that the monks sang before. It was a it was the prayer that they sang before bed. And um, they they at the end there was a song. And there was this one monk there who could really really sing, and the rest of the monks couldn't. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and like he just like when he he just lifted them and you know made it sound so beautiful you know it's just like he had this beautiful voice so i think i kind of got to experience a little bit of what what everybody you know when they first heard cast or you know in those kind of settings or somebody like david crosby how how a really talented singer can lift everybody up and you know when you got another talented singer like denny and, and john was a pretty good singer and michelle was adequate um you know it uh it really uh really lends itself to being something much greater. And I think that's really what set them apart. Yeah. Yeah, this music. And, and thank you again for reading from the book a passage about about the song California Dreaming, because that really, that just brings it together to all of those powerful voices, as you, as you say. We really appreciate it. Michelle Phillips for years said uh, that California Dreaming just changed her life, and everybody that would come up to her would say the same thing. You think it really just drove – you think that's right? think people just ended up listening to the song and ended up in California because they were just so moved and, and touched by that that beautiful harmony? I think it was a – it definitely contributed to it. I think, you know, um, California was – you know, California's kind of always been that place you go to to fill, fulfill your dreams. I mean, mm-hmm. you see it in – like the California gold rush and, uh, you know, the Cal- the dust bowl migrations, um, go West young man, um, and all those things. And I think that, you know, with the, with the, the rise in youth culture in the 1960s, uh, I think California was kind of where it was at, you know, it was warm and sunny there and it's supposed to be a place where your dreams came true. Um, and the, the hippie movement was very big there from the, from its onset, you know, with Cal Berkeley and, and, uh, you know, UCLA and USC and all those schools that were very kind of, you know, at least the, the uh, student body was very progressive. So I think it, I think it appealed to that. And I think, you know, hearing a song like California Dreamin' probably 
spurred that a little bit more for some people, obviously not for everybody, but uh, I know when it was released, uh, it was released, I believe in February 66 and really started to hit the, the East coast is where it's rise started. Like Boston is where it started to really chart and like in Washington, DC and New York and New Jersey. And, and it moved this, you know, it's funny because it went east and moved this way. What that whole song is, you know, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's like the, the Mamas and the Papas, a song that developed in, in in Greenwich Village, New York, and moved west. It seems everything about that song moves west. So, yeah, I think that the, I think it definitely played a part in it. You know, it might be a little bit more romanticized, you know, looking back uh, at it, but I certainly think that that definitely played a part. We'll be right back with author Scott Shea about his excellent new book, All the Leaves Are Brown. As I mentioned, today's show is brought to you by Babbel.com. Of course, for most of us, learning a second language in high school or college wasn't exactly a high point of our academic career, certainly not mine. I took Spanish from Senora Gibb, and while I enjoyed it, I certainly didn't leave class with any functional speaking ability. The truth is, it could really come in handy right now. So thanks to Babbel, the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions, I am addicted to the fun and easy way to learn a new language. Whether you'll be traveling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with family, or you just have some free time, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. For me and my family, Spanish language would certainly come in handy right now. My son married a lovely young woman from Bolivia, and her family is primarily Spanish-speaking. Two weeks ago, Gretchen and I attended my daughter-in-law's large family gathering for a niece's quinceañera. We had a blast, and I was actually able to speak roughly, but still, and everyone was so considerate, appreciative of my attempts, and I got huge props for my progress. So I actually spoke to many of the people there that were primarily speaking Spanish. And Babbel gets the thanks. Babbel's 15-minute lessons made it a perfect way for me to learn my new language, and I did it on the go. Babbel's expertly crafted lessons are built around real life, so you learn how to have practical conversations at a quinceañera. (laughs) Other language learning apps use AI for their lessons plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. I guarantee you, you will have a blast at the upcoming quinceañera in your neighborhood. <laughs> so right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash N-O-B. That's babbel.com slash N-O-B for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, the language for life. And now back to our interview with author Scott Shea about his excellent new book, All the Leaves Are Brown. <laughs> 
about the manas and tapas. We're with author Scott Shea. Scott Shea has written the new book, All the Leaves Are Brown, How the Mamas and the Papas Came Together and Broke Apart. The book is getting great reviews already, Scott Shea. And um, as I say, I, I loved it and I just can't recommend it highly enough. Bill Flanagan uh, recommends it too. Of course, the TV personality and radio host and, and author as well. He says, The Mamas and the Papa Story is wilder than any work of fiction. And Scott Shea is the first author to tell it objectively and in full. This is a book I could not put down. Great words of um, praise. Congrats again on this wonderful book, Scott Shea. I wonder, yeah, the the group that, you know, they were, they were just this kind of this wonderful combination, but they just stayed together only a short period of time. And yet they had this amazing impact. Um, you know, it was this period when the Beatles were kind of, you know, upon us, yet folk music was still very much present. And and then John brought together a bunch of new acts at the Monterey Pop Festival. All these things that were just kind of amazing. Tell us a little bit more about some of these key events and, and some of the things that, that led to their swift rise and, and then almost their quick dissolution, too. Yeah, um, you know, obviously signing with Lou Adler. You know, Lou Adler was really a musician's producer. Um, and he was really kind of, you know... Uh, I think the mamas and the papas helped him become a little bit more uh, hip. I think he, I think he always had it in him. But I know the uh, the song um, that really put his label on the on the charts, "Eve of Destruction," was kind of, you know, it, it was kind of dubious for him because it, it it was a number one hit, and it was truly an organic, out of nowhere. Uh, you know, DIY kind of hit, mm -hmm. but it, you know, in 1965 that, you know, that really upset, you know, that type of speech really upset a lot of people, um, you know, about, you know, uh, really kind of an anti-war song, anti-Vietnam uh, song, which was really kind of new at the time. I mean, we were just fresh into the war and, um, you know, people were still kind of Gung ho, uh, by and large, uh, you know, it changed and it changed rather quickly uh, over time. But I think um, meeting, you know, that's when the mamas and the papas came into his life, and really, I think, kind of gave him direction, and he in turn gave them direction because he was such a really good arranger. He'd been in the music business for at least ten years by that time, and he, you know, had helped shape the careers of Jan and Dean and. And and, and uh, you know wrote some hits for Sam Cooke and and uh, you know and was really a rising music mogul. He was kind of he kind of became like the West Coast version of Clive Davis, hmm. and uh, I think that he was certainly one of them. Um, the Monterey Pop Festival was another big thing that just kind of fell on John's lap. It was presented to him by a guy named um, Alan Parasier and uh, Ben Shapiro. And, uh, you know, they had conceived this idea after doing another kind of benefit concert for the helping the kids who were arrested during the Sunset Strip riots uh, in November 66. And um, they wanted to do a bigger platform uh, for for something like that. Uh, so they they rented a couple of the venue at Monterey, the fairgrounds for a couple of days and they needed a marquee act. So they, they, they wanted the Beatles and the stones, but you know, the Beatles had stopped touring 
and the Stones were in some legal trouble at that time and couldn't really get it into the United States. So uh, Derek Taylor, who was the press agent for the Birds uh, and was in Los Angeles, he'd actually worked with the Beatles, said, hey, you got the Mamas and the Papas here. And when they approached him, uh, why don't you go for them? And they did. And John uh, kind of took it over and made it a uh, thought, you know, if we're going to get people to do this, we got to make it a not nonprofit and have people just kind of donate their services. And uh, the one guy, Ben Shapiro, didn't like that. So they eventually bought him out and they kept on Alan Patterson and uh, you know, they added a third day and, you know, they really wanted these San Francisco bands who were really kind of, um, uh, on the periphery of, of the pop world, but what they were known about, like the San Francisco was really starting to get popular with these groups like the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and Country Joe and the Fish and Quicksilver Messenger Service. So, you know, he really made a play. It took him some while because they were very contentious and very anti-pop and uh, uh, mis- uh, mistrusting of anybody from Los Angeles. Um and uh, so it took a little cajoling and sending up Paul Simon to go up and uh, to convince them to do this. Um, and uh, then, you know, also they brought in a guy named Andrew Lugoldum from who was the Rolling Stones manager. And he recommended the Who and the Jimi Hendrix experience, who were kind of tearing things up in, in the UK. And it was just it was just like a perfect storm of all these groups who were just on the rise. They were right on the verge of blowing up and they, they got them all. And this really is what just put them out there and and gave us really classic rock. I mean, classic rock kind of started with the Monterey Pop Festival, in my opinion. Yeah, amazing acts, too. Hendrix, you know, just to have, you know, in Monterey, California. The pictures in the book are wonderful, too. Uh, You know, pictures of Lou Adler there in the book, pictures from the Monterey Pop Festival. Uh, Do you have a favorite picture that you could tell us about? Because I I certainly have one. I, I love that one with... Lou Adler and the band. That's great. They just all look so innocent, so fresh. Yeah, I think they're like Disneyland or something there in that book. It's, it's, it's weird. I, I like the one of uh, John consoling Michelle because it's really it's a really big event in the book um, where Cass Elliot uh, got arrested when they were sailing to England in 1967. They were trying to, you know, they 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 were in a, a rough spot. Uh, emotionally uh, and with each other, you know, personally, mm-hmm. and they were they wanted to regroup again, kind of like they did when they went to the Virgin Islands before they were famous, and um, uh, they had to stop it at Southampton uh, in in the United United Kingdom, and um, you know there was a warrant out for for Cass's arrest, and they knew she was on the boat, and there was this, you know read it in the book, there was this big struggle, and a and a, Michelle was like seven months pregnant so she just was just not feeling these cops and was arguing with them and uh, and there's a picture of john consoling her uh, on the sidewalk as they uh, as they just whisked cast away uh, that's probably the picture that i that i because uh, i really hadn't seen that one anywhere i kind of mm-hmm. stumbled upon it through it wasn't an eight uh, associated press or getty or even alamy it was some some United Kingdom uh, photo agency that had that. So I was like, I said, yeah, we got to use that one, man. That's, that's like, it puts the event in pictures. Yeah. Mama Cass was really quite a personality, you know, a standout member. She had this powerful, powerful voice, larger than life, you know, kind of person during, even during those times. 
maybe give us a couple of the insights that that you found in in writing the book about the challenges that Cass faced and and how she contributed to the unique sound of the band. Well, she was also a very perseverant woman, um, and she really wanted to sing with Denny and John and Michelle in this group they were forming. And, you know, John really had a vision of um, them just being a trio. This is 1964, 65, you know, before they, they set out for, uh, for California and stardom. And she was really uh, trying to get in with the band and uh, she just wouldn't take no for an answer. You know, they went to the, like I said before, they had gone to the Virgin Islands after uh, the folk music boom kind of blew up after the Beatles and John stubbornly realized that maybe this folk thing isn't going to work. (laughs) You know, maybe we, so, um, and she, she wasn't invited, but she ended up following him there uh, on the trip and, uh, sang, you know, they would sing on this makeshift stage at this place they, uh, lived at called Duffy's and she would wait tables and, and sing along with them as they were singing their songs. Right. And, uh, and, uh, you know, everyone, everybody knew, noticed except for John, John Phillips was not a fan. Everybody loved Cass. She had this great personality, larger than life, as you say, very effervescent, um, and she um she could sing she could really really sing you know she was you know, like right up there with roy orbison style you know and um so and, and everybody saw it but john at the you know and he kept saying no but she didn't give up you know a lot of people would just give up and move on and then uh you know she ended up going to california first and they met her up you know the kids met kind of you know they met mm-hmm. up out there and uh she traveled with them to these uh, auditions a couple auditions they went on and uh you know the the producers everyone she they they uh they auditioned for loved their look and uh loved the way they sounded with her in the group so john couldn't really refuse um so and you know that 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 went on into her solo career you know she uh, she wanted solo success she wanted to break away i think you know by 68 she'd had enough of john <laughs> and, and uh uh you know uh, it, it, it's interestingly enough or ironically enough he gave her her vehicle to get out and start a solo career and dream a little dream of me mm-hmm. and uh you know and uh got uh, got a great uh, you know she, she got a good deal with uh, Dunhill but eventually got a better one with RCA and um you know unfortunately um fate intervened and uh we lost her in 1974 mm-hmm. um and we will unfortunately never know what uh, what could have been right yeah you know, you, you just think about that, you know, the, you, you mentioned that song, Dream a Little Dream of Me, you know, that kind of that 1930s hit, you go back and listen to that. And it's got this, you know, it's such a different sound from everything else that they were doing, but it so shined a light on Cass and how powerful that voice was and, and what could be so many of those songs. Yet, yeah, do you have a favorite Cass song? Uh, favorite Cass song? Yeah. Um... Yeah, uh, she did a song on her first album called Burn Your Hatred, hmm. uh, which was written by Graham Nash, wow. um, which, you know, it's interesting because she, her first album was not really a success, but she did like uh, kind of, she had, well, a funny thing about Cast and Solo Careers, you really kind of see how John Phillips helped her because, you know, as as good as it was and like 
the songs she sang with John were, or his songs, the way she sang them, or the way he arranged them to to suit her, were really her best work. I mean, her her solo career was good, but you know, it wasn't it wasn't as cutting edge, you know, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. at least in terms of rock and roll or pop, um, you know, as, as it was with, with the mamas and the papas, but her first album is kind of interesting because she does songs by John Hartford and, um, John Sebastian and Leonard Cohen. And they're kind of, you know, obscure songs. And that one she does with Graham Nash or the, the by Graham Nash, uh, burn your hatred. Uh, I really enjoyed that one. And, um, yeah, she does a, a good John Sebastian song on there too, called "The Room Nobody Lives In." Um, so, uh, as far as I, I kind of like that because it's a little bit, it's a little bit closer to the John Phillips era, a little bit more cutting edge than what came a little bit later. Yeah, it was a strange solo career, you know, because you look at you look at that one album where "Make Your Own Kind of Music," you know, Bubblegum. I just thought, okay, that's that's quite a name there. It kind of encapsulates a little bit of what she was even doing in those days. Well, it's funny Lightweight. because, yeah. Would you say? Yeah. yeah, it's, no, I'm saying it's, it's, um, I said it in the book. It's, you know, she, for somebody who hung out with David Crosby and Eric Clapton and mm-hmm. Graham Nash and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, her, her music had more in line with like the 1910 fruit gun company than, <laughs> than, uh, than those guys, right. And Joni Mitchell, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. uh, it's interesting. Uh, it's, uh, uh again, it's, it, it's, it's what somebody can, it's kind of like, I like liken it to like Dionne Warwick, you know, mm-hmm. Dionne Warwick, she had some really great songs in the seventies, but she's really known for her work with Burt Bacharach. And um, I think that's kind of like with, with cast with John Phillips. It's obviously the catalog's not as enormous as Beyond's with uh, Burt Bacharach. But um, I, I think the sentiment, is, it still applies. It's, I think when you're with a great songwriter and a great arranger who just tailors stuff to the way you sound, um, it really lends something that's just not there, that you miss when it's gone, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I love a lot of the, you know, I love Heartbreaker by Dionne Warwick, but, you know, mm-hmm. uh, those those albums she did with Burt Bacharach are some of my favorites. Let's wrap this up, uh, Scott Shea, and, and talk a little bit about John Phillips, because you 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 write about the contradictions in the band, and, and there were a ton of them, you know, the individuality, the, the mixed, you know, the kind of the male and the female roles there, you know, even a song like dream, a little dream, but, but nowhere do those contradictions and ambiguities come together more when, you know, in, in the personality of John Phillips. And he really struggled after the band kind of broke up. The band was never really the same. They, you know, Fleetwood Mac almost comes to mind when you think about some of the infighting that went on with the mamas and the papas. But what was it about John Phillips that, you know, brought this band together yet was so, um, you know, much a responsible party in kind of their unraveling? Uh, there's a couple of things. Obviously, uh, you know, drugs. Uh, you know, played a part because the more he got into, I mean, he did harder stuff, the heart, like, you know, cocaine and, and heroin in the seventies. And he wasn't really doing that during his time with the mamas and the papas, but um, he kind of rested on his laurels a little too much. I think, you know, when that's the outcome I came with, I came away with when I was writing the book is like, he put on all this hard work with the folk music thing, the journeyman and the new journeyman and trying to get something going, uh, you know, after the new journeyman ended, um, and really when the mamas and the papas broke, he kind of rested on his laurels a little bit. I mean, they didn't tour very much. I think they played like 
live like 50 times in their career, you know, in their three years, which is just, that's not putting in the hard work. I mean, the Beatles and the Stones are the, you know, part of the reason they became extremely talented, but they also put in the work, uh, you know, touring constantly for years at a time, you know, going on radio shows and doing all the things you're supposed to do, all the promotion. Um, And I think, you know, obviously the, you know, Michelle was, his songwriting muse, um, she's probably one of the greatest songwriting muses in, in the history of rock and roll because, you know, Monday, Monday, yeah. go where you want to go. And, yeah. uh, so many of these other songs that John wrote, I mean, th- their second album is almost loaded entirely with John Phillips breakup songs, you know, and they're, <laughs> and they're so good. Um, but, uh, I think eventually that wore off, you know, and he really kind of started to dry up there as far as uh, songwriting is concerned, you know, and, uh, you know, I think he found other sources in the late sixties and early seventies when his solo career started, but, you know, he kind of uh, was hampered by his drug use. So, you know, I think his own sense of self-worth really kind of was their undoing. And, and obviously the, the mistrust, I mean, when you're, wife sleeps with the lead singer of the band and can you ever really trust them again you know mm-hmm. and uh, obviously I, I know denny and john were always close and their their relationship was uh restored but i'm sure that always kind of lingered there you know and then also john just was never sold on cats as much as he you know he wrote great songs for her but you know made her voice a focal point um there was just you know when especially when she started to achieve uh, more notoriety than him. Um, you know, and I don't think he wanted, he didn't want that kind of notoriety. He just wanted the, you know, Brian Wilson, G, Bob Dylan genius status. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that kind of tagline that comes along anytime you mention them, I, I think he would have been fine with that. But, uh, I think, you know, um, Cass's, uh, rising star, uh, was was another contributor to the breakup of the band. And I just don't, I don't think it could sustain itself with all those with all those variables. Scott Shea, author of the new book All the Leaves Are Brown: How the Mamas and the Papas Came Together and Broke Apart. Thanks for joining us today. Congrats again on the book. Great, great job. Just an amazing story. And um, thanks for joining us today to tell it. I really want to just recommend this so highly to our audience and and just just check this out. And uh, Scott, have a great rest of your day. Please, as you write about music, we'd love to talk to you again. I I personally love music. I I just love what you're doing. And so think about coming back at some point, please. Oh, absolutely. And if anybody wants to, you know, I I do write occasionally. I I write a lot about it. If they want to go to my uh, website, scottsheaauthor.com. Shea is spelled S-H-E-A. That'll link you to uh, places where you can uh, pick up the book or uh, any uh, any of my recent writings. That's great. Yeah, we'll put links in our show notes today so that everybody can find scottsheaauthor.com as well as all the other information about Scott and his work and this fantastic book, All the Leaves Are Brown. Thanks, Scott. Have a great rest of your day. Congrats, and uh, boy, my best to you. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate you having me on. My thanks to author Scott Shea, author of the new book, All the Leaves Are Brown. My thanks to Babbel.com for sponsoring today's episode. Babbel, the language for life. My thanks to the wonderful Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my equally wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe, and let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast.
Podcast. Thanks, everybody. And we will see you next week.